Amen. Well, we praise the Lord for His goodness. Amen. It's good to see the kids, so many of them, uh, going out. And uh, I find the book of Acts absolutely fascinating. You know, we've been going through looking at the history of the early church, and it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? You know, last time uh, we started chapter number three, we looked at this miracle, this sign, this wonder that was done among the people that happened to begin of Jerusalem, and that is the healing of this man who happened to be again born blind or born lame. And it's an absolutely amazing miracle. I don't think a lot of times we think of the significance of everything that needed to be done in order for this man to walk, leap, jump, run, dance, you know, as we see again that he does in the text. You know, his legs uh, would have been uh, absolutely, well, the bones in his legs would have been absolutely small. They would have been brittle. Uh, there would have been no ligaments. There would have been no tendons that happened to be right there. His uh, muscles would, would have been shriveled up. So they were absolutely nothing. And so all of that has to be made whole. And not only that, you know, we realize that walking is a skill. You know, running is a skill. Leaping is a skill. You know, and he never walked. He never leaped. He never ran. He never danced. He never did anything in his life. But suddenly he's even given that ability. You know, that coordination that happens to begin right here. And you can see why people are astonished. People are amazed. In fact, again, we read in verse number 11, it says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And you can imagine it. You know, this man was brought to the temple day by day and left again at the entrance of the temple, at the gate beautiful. And so everyone passing into the temple to worship God would have saw him begging every day. He would have been a fixture there. But here he is all of a sudden leaping, bounding, walking, you know, and, uh, and praising God. They would, they would have recognized, again, this was a miracle. And you can imagine everybody flocking to see this man, see this man. And as he clung to both Peter and John, they would have recognized that the vehicle that God had used to heal this man was none other than, than, uh, than Peter and John. You know, and their gaze would have changed from that man to, the, to, to these two, two other men. And right there, their, their stature among the people, you know, how people looked at them, all of a sudden would, would have been elevated. And well, what we have right after this is the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have the second sermon. And I believe, again, just like the first sermon, what we have right here is a summary Otherwise, the main points all happen to be again presented, but we basically have a summary of what he said. If you read it, it'll probably take you two or three minutes to read again out loud. And this is a summary, again, of the gospel. And I think these are so helpful, don't you? Because they really tell us what the early church believed about Jesus, what they taught about Jesus, what they taught about the gospel. But we also recognize it because it's the same gospel that we are to preach and we are to teach, that we believe in, right? But I think it's so helpful. Because when we start to see how the disciples, how the apostles, through the acts of the apostles, explain the gospel over and over and over, preach the gospel over and over, uh, we learn how to, how to preach. We learn, again, how to um, uh, make known and testify, again, of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I love about this early preaching, and you see this time and time again, because here's these signs here, these wonders to say that God, again, is present right here. This is a message that happens to be from God is that they always take the attention off themselves. You know, it would be so easy at this time. You can imagine all the people looking on with awe, all of a sudden say, you should see what else I can do. You should see the wonders. You bring more sick to your sick people to me and just be amazed at me. But that is not what we see. You know, uh, in, in, in uh, verse number six of this chapter, in fact, we read, I have no silver and gold. 
But what I, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And it's an amazing statement, isn't it? Because it would be so easy for both uh, Peter and John at this time to, to, to uh, say, you know, that's really what I want is silver and gold. You know, bring your silver and gold and see again the marvelous works that I can do. But what they do is they point and they direct their attention away from themselves to what the people really need. And that happens to be Jesus Christ. And you can see that in verse number 12. because this is, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? I love that, I love that answer. There's nothing special about us. You know, there's nothing unique about us. It's not that we have some special unction. We have some special go-between between us and God. And if you really want things to work, then, then come and trust in us. That, that's not it. You know, we are not men of piety. In other words, men of morality, men of super holiness. That somehow we have an end that happens to be again a God. We're sinners just like you. You know, and I love this. And I think it's a valuable lesson. You know, it's a valuable lesson that when we li- listen to uh, godly preaching, godly preaching is always this. Godly preaching points away from the preacher and points to Jesus Christ. And I think we should always be suspicious the moment a preacher starts pointing to themselves and makes themselves the uh, chief and main message of their preaching. And you can see that so much. You know, if you want your Christianity to work, if you really want an in with God, if you really want things from God, then you have to trust in me. And there's a de-emphasizing, again, of Jesus Christ, but there's, a re- there's an emphasizing of the preacher. And I think we always have to be weary of that kind of preaching that points away, because this is, none, this is not what they did. They pointed to Jesus Christ, right? They pointed to the author, the finisher of our faith. They said, you don't need me, you don't need John, you don't even need this miracle, but you need to see what this sign is pointing to. It's not pointing to us. It's not pointing to the layman, but it's pointing to the source of this miracle, the one that you need beyond a shadow of a doubt, which happens to be, again, Jesus Christ. And so what Peter does right after that is present the gospel. And he presents these gospel truths. And I want you to see this because there's so many sermons that happen to be through the book of Acts. And you know all of these sermons have in one kind or another four points. You know, and these four points are the four points of the gospel. And one is that there is a God that happens to be in heaven. You know, there's one true God and that we're all answerable to. The second point that's always presented is basically this. You have to understand who you are. You have to understand who humanity is. Humanity is, again, a sinful creature that has sinned against this great God. And the third truth is that Christ is this amazing um, uh, redeemer who has come. He's God in human flesh who has lived that life that we could never live and died that substitutionary death that I need. You need to see who Jesus Christ is. And then you need to know the response to this message, which is repentant faith, you know, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. You know, and I'm always surprised, again, because you talk to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think a lot of times they're enthusiastic, they want to preach the gospel, but they just don't know how to preach the gospel. They don't know how to testify of the saving nature of Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever been there? Have, have you ever wanted to share the gospel? And you're thinking, you know, well, what do I do? And let me tell you, throughout the book of Acts, that's what it's teaching us to do. It's not just telling us history, this what is taking place. It's teaching us how to present these truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at for the next couple Sundays. We're going to look again at these main truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as they are presented in this text. 
You know, but there's just one other thing that I want to, want to um, uh, say just before we begin to look at the text, and it's basically this. When you look at the book of Acts, you know, when you look at our faith, our faith, again, is not like the other faiths that happen to be, be, be there. There might be some other faiths that are meeting today. Well, let me tell you, Christianity is in a category all by itself. And the reason why is because when you look at all different faith-based systems, they're, they're all philosophical. You know, it's basically saying this is what we believe God is like. This is what we think God is like. When you look at Christianity, it's two things. One is it's historical, and the other it's personal. It's very historical. It's based upon historical truths. You know, historians and historians will often say, yeah, there was a man who walked, and his name was Jesus. He walked on, on planet Earth. And if they're really honest, because you have to look at the historical data, they will say that he died and rose again. You know, he, he, was, he, he lived, you know, he lived after his death. And they have to say that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And this is the thing that you have to realize. When we read the book of Acts, when we read about the layman at the gate beautiful, this is all history. And that's what Christianity is founded upon. It's founded upon history, but it's very personal, isn't it? You know, it's an amazing thing. We're given historical facts, but in the historical facts, we're given an interpretation. And the interpretation of those historical facts of how God works in history is very personal. You never hear they in the preaching. You never hear people in the third person. But you hear this so often, you, right? It's that plural personal pronouns that are used. It's very personal. You have offended the holy God. You have done this. You need to respond this way. And this is the thing that I want us to recognize, that this gospel is for, for us all. And this gospel is absolutely, absolutely personal, again, that happens to be in our life. So how do we present the gospel? You know, what is the gospel? If you, again, were, were before someone today and you wanted to present the gospel, again, how, what truths would you emphasize? Where would you start? You know, and that's what I want us to begin with. I want us to a- a- ask the question, where do we start in presenting a gospel? And I, I, I want us to look at this because we can see this in verses 12 and 13. Look at, look at what it says. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by the power of piety we have made him walk? And then he says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And let me stop right there. So right here, we see that this sermon, right at the beginning, it's very personal, right? This is the God of your fathers, right? This is a God that you know, that you have some knowledge about. It's very, very personal. And that's what the gospel always is. The gospel is very personal. In fact, when we came to Christ, when we came and we knew who God was, when we saw our sin, when we saw our need of Christ, we came face to face with Jesus Christ through the preaching, through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and that's what you have. You know, in fact, uh, at the beginning of this um, uh, book, in the first two verses, we read in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he says in the first, the first text, the first volume, which happens to be Luke, I gave again what Jesus Christ did. In the second a volume, which happens to be the Acts of the Apostle, I gave what Jesus Christ continues to do. So think about it. Here's this miracle that was done. Here's this sign and this wonder. And now 
Here, here Peter is going to give them an encounter. He's going to bring them face to face with Jesus Christ again in this preaching. And that's exactly what biblical preaching does. It brings you face to face with Jesus, right? We recognize that there is a Lord, there's a master, there's the great God-man who lived here on planet Earth. And biblical preaching brings us face to face with this great God. It's really personal. But we ask the question, where do we start? You know, where, where do we begin? You know, if you had somebody that happened to be again in front of you and said, tell me about your faith. Tell me about why you go to church every Sunday. You know, I've been really scared of death. You, you, you know, tell me what happens afterwards. Tell me if I ever have any hope of eternity. You know, let me ask you this question. Where would you start in giving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And let me uh, answer that question by saying where you wouldn't start. You wouldn't start with Jesus. Now, just before you pick up uh, rotten tomatoes and, uh, and vegetables and start throwing them at me, let me, let me try and explain that. You know, because I think a lot of times in our eagerness, we want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about, again, his perfect life. We want to talk about his substitutionary death. We want to celebrate, again, what he has done for sinners like us. But we never ask such a fundamental question of our audience. And you see this, again, all the way through the book of Acts. And it's basically this. Do they know who God is? Right? Do they know who, God, who the God of eternity is? When I'm speaking of Jesus, are they thinking of Allah? And when I'm speaking again of Jesus, when I'm speaking of God, do they have some sort of mystical connotation, something like Buddha? I mean, do they have any idea, again, who God happens to be? You know, you look at thoughts that happen to be, again, about God in our general populace today, and God's like this great, big, generous grandfather that happens to be, again, in heaven. He's overindulgent. He really doesn't care about our actions. He really doesn't care about what he has done. They don't even know how much control he has, what he's like. He's just this cheerful fellow. You know, uh, other people think he happens to be, again, a force that permeates everything. You know, if you were brought up in the last 50 years, you were brought up in the Star Wars era. You know, the Star Wars era basically, again, sees God in everything. There's this force, you know, impersonal force that permeates everything. And that's God. And people believe this. People believe, again, these various different thoughts that happen to be, again, about God. And I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves, do, do, does the individual that happens to be before me know anything about God? You know, and I find this amazing because this is exactly where, the, uh, where, where Peter begins. You know, he begins again at, 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 at this. And let me just say this. When you go through... And, look, look, and tr always try to find those four points in, in preaching. And some of them are going to be emphasized really heavily, and some of them, are, again, are going to be just briefly talked about. And the reason why is because the audience is always uh, different. You know, so when you look at the audience that happened to be right here, he's not going to give you a long exegesis about who God is. And why? Because they have some sort of understanding from the Old Testament about the holiness of God, the grandeur of God. You know, even the fury and the wrath of God, something about the mercy of God. They know something about God. When you get over to Athens, it's, it's absolutely different. You know, they have this statue. They have all these statues, all of these idols. And there's this one statue to the unknown God. It's going to be different. You know, and that's what you have to have to say for the various different audiences. We take this basic structure of the gospel and we apply it to the people that we're preaching to. And you can see it again right here, because look at what he says. He, says, he, um, he uh, says the first truth is about God. He says the God of Abraham, he identifies who he is, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, 
and the God of our fathers. And let me just stop right there because we see something of the significance of this God. Now think about it because here's Jerusalem. It's the only prescribed place for the Jews to worship God, to bring their sacrifices, to come before God. So all over the Roman Empire, the the, uh, Jews would come. And it would come from all these different cities and all these various different places, all of these various different countries that worshipped a plethora of gods. And all of a sudden, something is done in Israel. Something is done in Jerusalem so much different. Is this the same God? Is this the God we worship? And so he establishes that. You know, the amazing thing about this is he just doesn't say the God of your fathers. But he says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And the reason why he says that is because he is the God who acts in history. And why? Because he's the only true God. He's the great creator God, but he's the great God who providentially moves in history. So if you want to know why this man is walking today. It's tied to this Old Testament faith. It is tied to this Old Testament God, the one true God that happens to be again in heaven. And let me just say it as clear as possible because I think we live a lot more like the ancient world where people, there used to be, I would say, about 60, 70 years ago, uh, even in society of those who did not claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there, there was some sort of apprehension, some sort of knowledge about the true God that we call the God of the Bible. To, to, today there isn't. And I think we live a lot more in a culture like the ancient world than, than, uh, than, we, than we realize. You know, and, and, it's, and it's incredible because remember that. That's all he says about this God at this time. That's all he explains. I want you to know it's tied to this same God. But we see, again, this structure, in other words, in other places. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas do a, a similar miracle uh, through the power of Christ, listen to how all this plays out. You know, and, and it says this, now at Lystra, there was a man who was sitting, could, uh, sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Same situation, isn't it? You know, he would have the same problems again with his feet. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and walked. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, uh, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now, let me ask you a question. With all of that going on, with all of that misunderstanding of, of God and who he is, would it have been any use presenting Jesus Christ and him crucified at this moment? You know, why was he crucified? You know, why do I need forgiveness? Who do I need forgiveness from? Is it Zeus? Is it Apollo? You know, is it Hermes? You know, why? And let me ask you beyond a shadow of doubt, would it have been any use to present Jesus Christ and him crucified at this moment? And the answer is absolutely not. And why? Because they don't know who God is. You know, and there needs to be some fundamental um, understanding of the God that we worship, the God, the great creator God. So listen what happens next in that passage of Scripture, beginning in Acts chapter 14, verse number 14. It says, but when the apostles... 
Apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their garments and rushed to the crowd, saying, crying out. And listen what they cry out, because they cry out almost the same thing that Peter and John cry out. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things, and listen to what they start to explain, to a living God. These are dead gods. These are gods of your imagination. There is no Zeus. There is no Hermes. There's no Greek Parthenon of gods. To a living God. And who is this God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them? In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, here's God's goodness. He did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So he's, what's he doing? He's explaining God, this great creator God. And once you look at the world, here's this general revelation that's available to all people. And once you start seeing there's a God in heaven who made all of this, all of a sudden we start realizing there's somebody that I'm accountable to. There's somebody that I'm responsible to. You know, and the crowd didn't know who God was. That needed to be explained. You know, the the idea again of Jesus, the idea again of judgment makes absolutely no sense unless you understand who God is, unless you understand something of him. You know, nobody ever comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and, and says this, I trusted in Jesus, but I don't know who God is. You know, the whole preaching of the gospel, again, uh, challenges us our, on, on our assumptions about who God is, about his holiness, his grandeur, you know, his stature, his mercy, and his grace that happens to begin in our lives. It challenges us. And this is a place, again, to always start. You know, that there is a God of eternity. We have to make it plain. We have to tell people there's not other options. There's this one true God, right? Right? That's where we start. We start with God. Now, here's a question. Where do we go next? Where do we go next? You know, if you had somebody again, and they happened to be again in front of you, and you started talking about God, you started even showing them the, the general revelation that happened to be again around you, and they admit it beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no way that this could happen by accident. You know, the beauty, the symmetry... You know, if you've ever looked at a newborn baby or if you've ever looked at a sunrise or sunset, there's a sense that it happens to be in us of grandeur that there is a God. You know, and once somebody realizes that, where do we go next? And not only do people have to realize again who God is, they need to recognize who they are. You know, let's look at verses 13 and following again of our text that happened to be again right here. And it says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you, like, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You know, and there needs to be a recognition, again, of who we are before a holy God. You know, and, and again, you have to know your audience. 
and you bring your audience, you bring the revelation again of God, what God's word says, but you, you bring it in a real personal way that people might see their sin. You know, and we realize as we look at the Jews, the Jews were much like us in that they were self-righteous. You know, if I appeared before God, look at, look at all the wonderful things that I would do. But the Jews were also different. And they were different in this way, that they had been chosen by God. They had been selected out of all the people that happened to be in the world. They were selected. They were recipients of the word of God. And they thought that they had stature and standing in God's sight because they were different than all of the nations that happened to be again around them. They, they were different in that they were chosen and by birth the people of God. You know, and so the gospel has to come in a real way, a real personal way to show their guilt. And this is, and this is what, what, what we see. And even when we explain to others, we need to show their guilt before others. And their guilt is really established be, before two statements. And one happens to be, again, in verse number 13, and we, re, and, we re, and we read it just a moment ago. It glorified his servant Jesus. So here's Jesus. And think of what they're doing. Think of what he's doing. He's not presenting Jesus as Lord and Savior right here. What he's trying to get them to see is this. He wants them to see their guilt. He wants them to see that there is something wrong before them them and God, that they are under the judgment of God. So that's why he's bringing up Jesus here. And the second statement happens to be, whom God raised from the dead. So in between these two statements, he wants to show their guilt. And their guilt, again, is basically about this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And God establishes who Jesus is, that he is a great Messiah. He was raised from the grave, right? It's the validation of all the words that Jesus says, all of the miracles, all of the signs that Jesus said. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, you know, he's he's. God the Father is putting a stamp of approval on all those statements. This is who he is. And so they cannot argue. There's no boasting about that. And here's an amazing thing, because think of it, because he's taking this, what they know, what's true, what has been revealed about God, what God has done in time, you know, and it's going to be recorded in the word of God, and he's applying it to this audience that happens to be right here. And so he says in verse number 13, because he starts to show them the guilt. The God of Abraham, God of Jacob, the God of, uh, of your fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, we really see the evil and wickedness, again, of Pilate's character because Pilate knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is innocent. He knows, again, that he has done no crimes that are worthy of death. In fact, he's even warned by his wife, have nothing to do with this man, and he wants to release him, right? But when you look at the Jews, and especially the religious leaders who, again, are standing for the flock of Israel, you know, nothing, nothing. I mean, Pilate's even willing to beat him and then release him, but nothing, nothing except the most excruciating, painful, and humiliating kind of death will do, and that happens to be the death on the cross. doesn't matter what Pilate does. You know, and think of it, because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, none of them stood up. None of them said, again, this is an innocent man. None of them said this was wrong. You know, and, and you could see that. And you think their guilt shh, couldn't get any worse, but you start to think about the kind of man Jesus is. And you start to see that he's the perfect reflection of the Father. 
He's perfect love. He's perfect righteousness. He's perfect glory. I mean, think about it. Why do they hate Jesus so much? What did he do that was so evil? I mean, he went everywhere healing the masses. You know, somebody had this disease. Somebody had this evil spirit. Somebody had this malady. And he went everywhere, everywhere, whether it happens to be leprosy, whether it happens to be blindness, whether it happens to be lameness, whether it happens to be, again, demon inhabitation. He helped everybody all of the time. And then he would preach this message. And think of the message that he was preaching. How one could be right before this glorious God above and have their sins forgiven. I mean, what greater and more loving message could you give? And yet they hated him and despised him. In fact, again, we read in verse number 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. That is who Jesus Christ is. That's a description of Jesus This is what you've done. You've denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So Pilate wanted to go to an extreme, and he really wanted to release this one. And there happened to be a a tradition on Passover that they would release a Jewish prisoner. And so he realized if he just said, I'm going to release Jesus, there would be an uproar. So what he did was give him a choice, and he took the most notorious criminal a known murderer, a known insurrectionist, and it happened to be again Barabbas, and he put him on one side. And here's this beaten man that happened to be again on the other side, tortured man that happens to be on the other side. And he says, which one? And they choose the murderer. They choose this one. They choose the murderer over the holy and the righteous one. That's who they choose. We would rather have him, right? And Pilate says, I'm still willing. I'm still willing to let him go. But what do they do? They cry out. They cry out. In other words, there's passion behind this. Crucify him. Crucify him. Nothing else will do. And the guilt couldn't be more readily evident. And here's the thing. By their reaction to this man being healed, speaks, speaks of the guilt that happens to be again in them. Because look at how he continues in the last couple verses of this paragraph. And he says, you killed, you killed who? The author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And he says this, to this we are witnesses. In other words, we've seen this. We've seen his resurrection. And his name, here's the thing, you're glorifying God right now. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So here's this man standing, and Peter says, look away from us, look away from us, and look at that name, which is above every name, because it was done through his power. And if it was done through the power of Jesus, and you are glorifying Jesus Christ, you're glorifying God in, in this instance, think of what you've done with Jesus Christ. Think of it that you've t- taken the Lord of glory, the author of life, the one who gives life and where life is found, and you've crucified him. Now, let me tell you, that's taking revelation. That's taking what God has given and applying it to the heart of the individual, that there's no back door, there's no escape route that happens to begin right here. Their guilt is absolutely evident, and that's what we do. We take what we know about God, we take, again, what is taught in the Word of God, and we show people their personal guilt very personally, because it's true about us, too, isn't it? So we go to the Sermon on the Mount. You think you're good? 
You think you've never done a crime. You think you've loved again your family. You think again beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've been faithful to your spouse, that you're all right before God. You know, look at me compared to everybody else. We do the same thing that Jews do. You know, look at me. Well, you know, if you think hatred towards your heart, in your heart towards your brother, that is the same attitude. That is the same attitude in a murderer. And God knows about that. And you've murdered somebody in your heart who is made in the image of God. You know, it would be interesting if I asked this morning how many of us are mass murderers. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, if we use that standard. You know, uh, I've never committed adultery with my wife. You know, a man who's lusted in his heart has committed adultery already before God. How many serial adulterers are here? You know, well, you should see the way I take care of my family. Right? Right? What does God do? He makes his reign to come on the just and on the unjust. Since the sun on the crops of those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Right? Right? And the command is what? To love the same way that God has loved us. Love your enemies. Right? Who among us is not guilty before God? And here's the thing, right? Right? We have a knowledge of God, and then we have a knowledge of ourselves, and all of a sudden we start to see how just judgment and condemnation is. And here's the thing. Now Jesus makes sense. Now Jesus makes sense. Doesn't it? Right? Without this, and well, let me tell you about Jesus. Without this and this, his life, his testimony, what we're going to celebrate this morning, makes absolutely no sense. And that's the thing about the gospel. Once you recognize it, you recognize the inevitable, terrible judgment and ask, what must I do to be saved? And I think, again, when you look at that, it's not only given to us to present the gospel, but to live in light of it. I think the most, in fact, I know the most changing message that any of us could ever have in our life is the gospel. Isn't it true? I mean, so often in life, I don't know, maybe you're going to vote me out after this, but I think, again, many times we think we're getting a raw deal in life, right? I can't believe that happened. Can't believe I've got to go through this. I think a lot of times we think we're getting a raw deal in life. Do we know what we deserve? Do we know who God is? Do we know who we are? You know, I think a lot of times, here it is, here it is, God. Here it is, man. Oh, we're overwhelmed with the grace of God. You know, there's nothing like the gospel that destroys the lethargy that happens to be again in our life. So may God help us to see the wonder of the cross, the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us. And may we be willing to give that gospel message far and wide to those that happen to be again around us. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you so much, Lord, for these examples of biblical preaching, and it's amazing how they can take these various different themes, these various different main points, Lord, and interweave them 
Lord, to the audience that happens to be again before them. And we realize, Lord, as we look at these main points, that the messages are different, whether it happens to be here, whether it happens to be in Lystra, whether it happens to be in Athens. But God, we realize the message is still the same. Lord, and that is that you are a holy God, a holy creator God who we are answerable to. God, that we have sinned and defiled that which is of great value, the greatest value, which is your glory. We've trampled it underfoot. And because you have eternal value, we deserve an eternal punishment, Lord. And we realize it's not just a few missteps, but when we describe sin, we describe who we are from the core of our being. And then we see Christ. Then we see this Holy One sent from the Father above, this one who came, lived that perfect life that we couldn't live, but died, taking that eternal wrath upon him that we might have life before you. And God, we realize how we respond to that is by simply recognizing our sin, turning from that sin, and embracing Christ, trusting him. God, I pray that if there's any unsaved here this morning, that you would open up their hearts, open up their eyes to the reality of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would work powerfully, even as we read in 2 Corinthians just a little while ago, Lord, that you, your, your light would penetrate the darkness and give life, Lord, and that they would trust in him. And God, as we think of these great truths as for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would live in light of the gospel. God, that we would preach that message anytime we are in self-doubt, anytime we are pitying ourselves, anytime we are overwhelmed with bitterness about our lot in life. God, that we would recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt the grace that you have lavished and poured upon us, the great promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. And God, that we would live, regardless of our circumstances in the here and now, with such a joy because of what you have done through Jesus Christ and what you will do. We thank you so much. Just be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother.